Hello everyone and welcome back to the Shared Ireland podcast. This is part two of our podcast with MLA for South Belfast, um, Mr. Matthew O'Toole. So we um, left off, Matthew, after discussing in part one your political career, uh, working in Westminster and um, your love of Man United, which, as I say, uh, coming from a Liverpool fan, I'll try not to hold that against you. Thank you, thanks. We we just ended there on part one about why the SDLP was the right fit for you moving forward. And I suppose just to um, continue talking about the SDLP and, and, and them as a party... Would you agree, Matthew, that the SDLP is kind of playing second fiddle to the other um, major nationalist party, particularly in the North, Sinn Féin, over this past 10 or 20 years? That, you know, the SDLP under the leadership of John Hume um, was obviously the the major nationalist party here in the North. But since the the whole peace agreement and... um, the ceasefires and the signing of a Good Friday Agreement, that, you know, there, there is no debate about this. Um, unfortunately, from your point of view, um, that Sinn Féin now have clearly um, taken over the, the mantle of the number one nationalist party here in the North. And I suppose a couple of questions, but you, you can answer them, these in any way you want. Why do you think that is number one? And maybe from an SDLP point of view, more importantly, is how do you believe that you can regain that number one position? And I'm not suggesting that this is a competition or a contest, of course, but obviously every party likes to get as many elected representatives as they can. Um, those are good questions. Now, I think, you know, the first point you made was would I accept that Sinn Féin had, um, had done better than the SDLP over the past 50 to 20 years in terms of votes they have. I mean, I don't think it would be it would be daft of me to deny that um, they've um, they've got more votes and they've won more seats in the assembly um, and, and, and Westminster. I think, um, but in a sense, the question isn't so much about um, why that's happened because there's a sort of there are people who are much better able to to, to answer that um, in terms of the, the you know, historical reasons or factors that existed over the last fifteen to twenty years um, and. You know, you could do an entire separate podcast on some of the on the, the Good Friday Agreement and, and, and the politics that, that followed it and, and why all that happened. Um, I think looking forward, um, and in a sense this is part of why I was attracted to the opportunity to come and serve, and um, genuinely for me, though we are a political party that wants to win votes, and you know, there is a there is always there is a degree of competition if people are putting themselves up for election. It's a bit like you know. It, it, people want to win votes and, and, and they want to get elected mm-hmm. not not mean they get elected ahead of other people but in a sense for me it's less about it's less about coming coming out number one within nationalism and more about articulating a vision for the future of Northern Ireland but also the future of the whole island of Ireland mm-hmm. I think it's worth saying that I think it's really important for us to recognise how society in the north has changed I think two interesting things have happened. One, a specifically in relation to the constitutional question, I think people are, many more people are open to a discussion about what, um, for the changed constitution on the side 
nationalist. Mm-hmm. Most of the surveys show that um, the number of people who define themselves as other are increasing. It might be that a lot of those people are defining themselves as other, but they're still voting for a party that is traditionally unionist or nationalist. Yes. Matthew, sure, the Shared Ireland platform um, are all about speaking about the island of Ireland as one and not um, focusing on borders or artificial borders and particularly moving into the future. We believe um, that you know the island should be one. Uh, we are educated and smart enough people to be able to rule our own affairs here. But just again, keeping um, going back to the SDLP as a party, um, if you want to, which I'm assuming the party does, want to look after all the people on the island, why is it that you haven't ventured into the entire 32 counties as a party? And I suppose that links into, which I'm assuming you know what's coming next. Yeah. Was it an attempt to try and do that with your um, partnership with Fianna Foil? And I suppose we could go on and on and on about this, but you know, would it not have been better to go and stand for electoral office 
as a party, namely being the SDLP, as opposed to what many would see riding on the coattails of Fianna Fáil? Of course, I accept that. But, 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 but you're, you're more than said laughing. I think um, I, would, I laugh in two ways. I say um, I completely agree that um, uh, that a big part of our rule and a big part of, in a sense, why I was, was drawn to the opportunity is that we need to be part of the conversation, not just in um, the north, but all across the island, about people's aspirations and about how, how as an island, we deal with. Um, uh, the challenges of the 21st century, not just the constitutional stuff, but yes, the constitutional stuff, but also, for example, climate change. How do you have, how does a, a, an island that is, um, uh, you know, a, um, uh, has the possibility to have a, you know, a coordinated um, uh, carbon, um, you know, coordinated strategies for mitigating carbon, for example, how do we, how do we, how do we go about that? How do we have that conversation? Basis, I think, um, I think yes, our party needs to be plugged into this conversation, and I want us to be. Before I did this, I, I wrote quite a few articles for the Irish Times. And part of the reason for me doing that was, um, uh, first of all, you know, I um, I enjoy writing about these things. I enjoy engaging in debate about them, but also I'm particularly interested in getting people. Matthew, um, if you had have been uh, an official and a um, member of the SDLP uh, before uh, your party leadership made the decision to, um, we'll just say, go into bed with Fianna Fáil, 
Would you have been personally in favour of that? Or would you have been like some of the other quite vocal members of your party and been opposed to it? Okay, fair enough. Um, I'll let you off the hook on that one. <laughs> I don't know. I think I, give anyway. I think I gave you a bit of a, an answer, but anyway. Yes, yes. We can read between the lines on that one, certainly. Matthew, in recent years, we have seen a surge in support for the SNP in Scotland with the very real possibility of an Indie Ref 2 and the fracturing of the union, I guess. How likely is this, do you believe? And if the Indy Ref 2 in Scotland is successful. What impact will that have on us here, do you think? So, I mean, I've written a bit about this um, in, my, in my previous life. Now, I also, uh, when I, I worked um, as a civil servant on Indy Ref 1, so I, I know a lot of the... Ah, indeed you do, that's right. Why, why do you think that is, Matthew? Ireland, a new constitution for our island is about how we how we find a new way of talking. 
Matthew, can I just interrupt you very briefly there? Can I just um, interrupt you very briefly here? Yeah. Um, I read an article recently by um, Alex Kane, who I guess predominantly would give the views of the unionist population here. And Alex said that token gestures like, you know, keeping, um, making the 12th of July an official bank holiday and um, even changing the Irish national flag to incorporate elements of the Union Jack or whatever. Um, and he deliberately phrased it in that way, Matthew, as token gestures. Right. Now, now, I suppose, you know, I was very interested in reading article uh, that article from Alex. And, and, you know, it made me think. From a nationalist perspective, which I am, I make no apologies off, and I do want to see the reunification of my country. However, we in Shared Ireland believe that, you know, we have to be respectful of every tradition here. And, and, and bearing in mind that there's more traditions than just unionism and nationalism. But, you know, it, it's made me think of, you know, are these token gestures? Um, is this not me trying to be genuine here by saying, yes, absolutely, moving forward into a new shared Ireland, uh, keeping the 12th of July as a bank holiday and having it officially recognised as so? Um, you know, for me, that's not a token gesture. For me, that's me trying to be sincere and trying to show my political opponents that I do want them to be a part of a new shared Ireland. So I guess my question to you is, you know, how can we as pro-unity people convince our unionist friends and neighbours that we are genuine here and it's not just a token gesture? Being on um, on street posts or taking 
think we've all this stuff through carefully, creatively, um, and, um, and 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 in a way that's as generous as possible. And um, because I think the new, whatever new constitution we have, and I and I, and I very much hope we do have a, a, a like that new new Ireland, a new constitution. It, it will be something completely different. It will be something different to. It won't be a, you know a, a case of. No, I, I agree with your sentiment there, Matthew, I do, and I suppose it would be my natural tendency now to continue um, and come back at a few points of that, but I'm very conscious of the time here, so I'll, I'll move on, but keep with the same theme. My next question for you, Matthew, um, is a pretty long one, and it comes in four parts, so um, I'll give you plenty of time to um, expand on these. So the first part of this next question is, do you support... Irish reunification? B. Do you see the establishment of a Citizens' Assembly as the next logical step in this process? C. Would you be in favour of the SDLP taking part in such an Assembly if and when it does happen? And finally, do you believe civic society has a role to play here in, in the discussion around constitutional change, Matthew? So, a pretty long and extensive couple of uh, questions there, but um, sure you can you can um, give us your views on them. I think the answer. Well, I can give you. I, I give the brief the first or the brief four. I think the answer is yes to all of them. Albeit, I think the second one. I think I would have um, the thing I would uh, the thing I would say that the second one in the citizens' assembly. 
Yeah. I don't know if that's exactly the the the, 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 the literal next step, as in you know in the, you know in the immediate future. Um, but I but I can definitely see merit in it. So so in broad terms, yes. But I think that um, a big part of um, a big part of this is going to be thinking about how we um, uh, thinking about how do we find new ideas and new ways to, to, to do what I just described before, which is um, uh, celebrate and incorporate um, uh, Britishness on the island of Ireland. Um, but, 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 but um, Matthew, can I can I again just interject for one wee second? Just just seeing that we're speaking about the citizens' assembly here, and you would be. I hope I'm right in quoting you here. Wouldn't be too sure if it's the next logical step. I suppose my answer straight back to that would be, why wouldn't it be the next logical step? And the reason why I say that in a kind of surprised tone in my voice is because surely if we have learned anything from the shambles that was Brexit in 2016, it proved to us all that if you fail to put in the proper groundwork initially, and I'm not talking for months, I'm talking for years in advance of something, well then, all you do is create a state of panic, people of being unsure what way to vote. And and this is... This is this is unquestionably the, the biggest question that the people living on the island of Ireland will ever have to face and for generations before and for generations after you and I are long gone. So, so I, I suppose, Matthew, just to finish on this, why wouldn't it be the next logical step to do it now? Uh, because this is going to, as we all agree, it's not a vote that can happen next week because there has to be the groundwork put in place. So the establishment of whatever you want to call it, the Citizens' Assembly, whatever, it is imperative that it happens now. Well, I suppose what I would say, what I would say to that, and I wasn't saying that there shouldn't be a Citizens' Assembly, I was just saying, in terms of how you sequence it, it might be that the thing that comes first is them having something, a, um, something to discuss, as it were, and there are lots of, um, uh, as in it, like a, a set of proposals or, or a broad set of um, uh, scenarios that they, that they would be, that the,
And I suppose the fourth part of my question, Matthew, was do you believe civic society has a role to play here? And I suppose the significance of that is a couple of reasons. Civic society are the people who elect, let's face it, our political representatives. And, um, you know, no proper constitutional change anywhere around the world, I would suggest, can take place and have a meaningful, uh, long-lasting effect if civic society aren't involved in it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, I know you did refer, um, Matthew, in a previous answer um, about this next question maybe above your pay grade, as you uh, kindly put it, but will the SDLP use your formal links with other parties in the new Southern Government to push for a Citizens' Assembly or something like that to plan and discuss what a new shared Ireland might look like? Or would that be your hope? With that you would do that with your formal links, and I suppose I'm obviously talking about Fianna Fáil here. The, the short answer is I'm not sure what will happen through, through, through formal links, but the, but, the, but the long answer is that yes, I think there will have to be um, engagement by us and by other parties in, in, in the North, and by all parties on the island. I mean, I'm sure, you know, you, you, you know it, we have to be obviously 
realistic about the short term and, 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 and whether union, uh, and how unionist parties will engage in particular to the constitutional debate. We should we should be realistic about that. Um, but um, but yes, I mean there's this new bit in the program for government document which talks about a shared island. I think it's really important that we um, that we uh, engage the the new um, the new government uh, on the detail of that. What that means, you know, that document, new program for government that's been um, announced is um, aspirational, and that's great. Um, a little bit possibly like one of the the, the, doc, the you know our documents up here. Um, in terms of uh, aspirational stuff, but uh, obviously they had to they had to agree between three parties. Uh, there are lots of good stuff in there. So yes, we want to see. We we'll talk to them about what that means. Talk to everyone in the government down there because it, it, it's about what a shared island mean. What does that mean in terms of and um, you know the constitutional debate going forward, and also in in, in, in the more immediate term, what does it mean in terms of delivery of mighty um, cross border infrastructure, whether that's the you know. A5 or the Nile Water Bridge because we, we need to, we need to see progress on those, and um, uh, but I think it is really important that we get stuck into that debate, and um, and I'm really keen to do it, and I'm you know in a sense part of my um, part of my um, motivation for for coming back here is getting involved in that debate. Mm-hmm. Very good. Okay, Matthew, we're 35 minutes into part two of our conversation with you today. So just coming near the end of it, again, another very big subject, what I'm going to um, ask you about next. So um, if, if you could give me your opinion on it and that of your party, if you don't mind. And it's the whole question around legacy and victims' pensions that's ongoing at the moment. And I suppose just to outline a little bit of context for the benefit of our viewers here who may not be listening to this um, interview um, in Ireland. Um, I suppose the, the British government has given the green light, uh, along with the Stormont executive, to pay um, a pension on an ongoing yearly basis, uh, upwards of £10,000 in the extreme case. Um, to people that have been affected by the, our troubled past. And that can be anywhere from having post-traumatic stress disorder um, to people who are um, unfortunately have lost limbs and um, anywhere in between. So the British government um, have not give any funding for this. They believe the onus is on the Northern Ireland executive to fund this. The executive collectively do agree on this point that that they simply haven't got the, the means to fund this on an ongoing basis. Um, so at least we're all agreed on that part. But there seems to be a, a massive sticking point here on who should qualify for this pension, Matthew. And um, I suppose Sinn Féin are coming out very clearly and saying that they believe everyone um, who was affected here and who qualifies obviously um, should be treated equally and should be entitled to um, apply for this pension and one of the stumbling blocks seems to be here that anyone who has had a conviction of a I suppose a, a political nature over the period of two and a half years will not currently qualify for this pension could I have your views on this please Matthew? Now, which is that there is a degree 
in the assembly of the executive, I should say, with the, the funds or, uh, in order to um, in order to pay for this. I mean, in terms of the specific the, the specific definitions, you know, I'd be honest. Um, I, I I don't have. Um, uh, I'm I'm loath to get into a kind of offering a particular view on. on but but Matthew, with all due respect, yes. you 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 are representing um, your constituency, which no doubt it will have people that will be um, affected by this pension, and you are in the assembly um, as their public voice. So, as I say, with all due respect, you should have an opinion on this. But Matthew, how can you set something up if you don't know who can qualify for it? Well, you could, well, a, a, the, you could name a department for a start. You know, the, the executive can name a department um, who, can, who can start paying this stuff out. I think there is a, a broader challenge here, which is which you sort of touched on now, which is about, you know, the British government have gone back on what was a very delicately negotiated settlement uh, around Stormont House, and they started to, to slightly change the... The rules and the definitions, and that's a massive, that's a massive challenge and a massive problem because this stuff is um, very delicately worked out between political parties. I'd rather that um, that we were able to take some of the politics out of it, and frankly, that the UK government hadn't put the executive in this position in the first place. Well, politics certainly should not enter into people's. Um, mental health, their physical health, their welfare, their long-term welfare. And, and while money, as we all accept this, will not uh, cure what happened to uh, these poor people uh, previously, but it will hopefully enable, uh, I guess, many in many different reasons, it'll be a form of possible closure because it will be a recognition that they are victims, number one. And also it may afford them and their family, and in a lot of cases, actual carers on a daily basis, to uh, give them a better quality of life. Yeah, I agree. I, mean, I, like, I agree now. This is, this is something that should have been sorted a very long time ago, and it's really disappointing that it's been um, that, that, that it hasn't been, uh, and, and and we've been and we've been pushing for it. And I, and I, and I wish it and I wish it had been sorted quicker. Ma- Ma- Matthew, I, su- I suppose you know. Again, this is a very complex and emotive subject, but you know. My personal view on this is there should not be a hierarchy of, of victims. Like, you know, a victim is a victim. And, you know, regardless of, of, of you know, the extent of someone's injuries or involvement um, in things here is that if you are a victim, you're a victim. And, you know, I want certainly all victims to be treated equally here. But again, that's my ultimate point here is that all victims should be treated equally. I suppose, Matthew, mental health is a massive thing 
unfortunately throughout the world but um, I suppose you and I are probably more interested in, in what happens in our own little corner of the world here in Ireland and um, there, there's a stat that I um, mentioned to your colleague in a different party right now, MLA Colin Gildenew recently that um, there has been more people took their own life unfortunately here in the north of Ireland since the conflict ended than there has been in the entire conflict um, and I think the people that lost their lives here in the conflict was over three and a half thousand people so that's a very scary stat that more people have taken their lives since the, the, the signing of the Good Friday Agreement and, and, and this unfortunately for me isn't an issue that's going to go away how in your capacity now, Matthew, as um, a member of the executive, how can you help and your party to tackle this? Yeah, well, you're right. Now it's an urgent. It's a really big question. It's a really urgent one. Um, I think we need to have uh, proper funding of our mental health services for a start. I think you know um, we um, we there's been a historic challenge around. Um, mental health services being, um, first of all, mental health uh, as a service not being treated as seriously as, as it were as, as, as physical health. I think for a variety, as you said, we have particular mental health challenges around people who are involved in the conflict here, but every society, including our own, is dealing with what is basically an epidemic of um, uh, mental health uh, problems. Some of it is probably related to our changing relationship with technology. Um, I don't think we've and this is a broad point for lots of societies, not just here. I don't think we've really begin to, begun to comprehend how our relationship to technology has changed our mood, and 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 um, and there are, and there are lots of other um, challenges that have contributed to mental health problems, including um, uh, you know people having um, uh, some of the economic crises of the, of the last uh, decade. And unfortunately, we may be in a, in a the economic crisis that hit us just at the um, in two thousand eight nine. Led to significant unemployment. It led to, you know, problems around um, uh, around with unemployment, business failure, and then ultimately um, a Tory government which um, uh, implemented cuts to, to benefits that um, created significant problems for people's mental health who were affected. But we could face another a post-COVID mental health crisis because people have been locked down. But they're all they've also faced the stress of having to think about a um, a pandemic. So all of these things, I, I, I suppose that's a slightly waffly answer now, but the key point I think is that we, first of all, that we understand the like, hugely high priority that mental health um, is, because it has, it, you know, there are so many other challenges that are associated with mental health that, um, that, that, that also cost money to the, to the public purse because they have to be dealt with. Mental health is in a sense a root cause for so many other social and policy problems. So it needs to be addressed. We need to fund it properly. Uh, I think there is widespread political acceptance of that now um, among the northern parties. I hope um, I hope it feeds through in terms of um, funding and prioritisation for mental health services as we go forward. We've named a mental health champion now, and that's a good step forward. But it's only you know it's only one mm-hmm. step forward. So we need to really follow through with it. And um, I think there's a there is a broader challenge, which is, is quite a, it's quite seem quite a a big and philosophical question, but I think there's a broader challenge which lots of societies will have to think about post-COVID, which is how do we, how do our, how do our lives, our, 
our working lives, particularly our relationship with technology, is that contributing to, um, and, and through things like social media, is that contributing to a sort of a, a, an epidemic of unhappiness and stress that we that we can do something about, and, uh, and how do we go about changing it? So lots of big questions there, but I think that the, the key thing that um, we can do as, a, as an assembly is ensure that we are um, properly funding our mental health services for, for a start. No, that's great. No, and, and certainly um, don't apologise for giving, as you describe it, a waffly answer. It's certainly not, Matthew, because I understand it's a very com- complex question and you could dedicate um, several podcasts solely to that question. So, no, thanks for your response on that. Right, Matthew, we're coming near the end of, of, of this uh, interrogation. <laughs> You'll be glad to hear. <laughs> um we, we, the Shared Ireland team have recently created a new blog series, Matthew, where we'll be asking um, people like yourselves, people that we did podcasts with and future guests, and we, we are opening this up to our members, and that's, I guess, our members. I describe them as anybody that follows us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter to contribute their thoughts moving forward in a blog series. Would it be something in your own good time that you would consider maybe writing us a little piece on, Matthew? I'd be um, very pleased to be asked. I'd be delighted to you know, I'm, I'm generally better in, written, in the written word than the spoken one, so Ah, yes, coming from your journalistic <laughs> background, yes. Listen to me, I'm sure not. Matthew, we always ask this one question to all our guests. How do we create a truly shared Ireland? Now, I accept that we did touch on many aspects of this, but if you could sum it up. So, um, here's my my big, I guess, preoccupation is I think we need to be as generous um, in our definition of Ireland and Irishness um, as we possibly can be. I think, in a sense, it's part of the, the extension of how we, you know, get to know and, and, and care for our, for our neighbours. We mm-hmm. see ourselves in them of how you, how you feel a sense of obligation, responsibility and affection for, for any, any, um, any people that you share a, um, a, a space or an organisation with. But unfortunately, we haven't always done that and we haven't done that in certainly in this part of Ireland, um, as we know, um, with pretty horrible consequences. But um, I think a big challenge, and in a sense part of, one part of the reason, not the whole reason, because there are lots of other explanations, one part of the reason why um, uh, vision in our and including the, the border have persisted is I think that we haven't always been as expansive, and, and, I, and I say this about both jurisdictions on the island now, we haven't been as expansive as we could be about how we define Ireland and how we define Irishness. I think um, there are, uh, you know, I'm speaking to you from Parliament Buildings in Stormont, not very far from here, people will be um, putting flags up on lampposts um, for, for the summer ahead. Now, lot of those people um, probably don't feel very Irish, they may never want to be described as Irish, and that's their that's their right, the Good Friday Agreement says that they don't have to be and, and we shouldn't force it on them. Having said that, there is a challenge around understanding their place on the island of Ireland, their right to, to be here and their right to be um, celebrated, even if I'm not a massive fan of putting flags up at that post, which I'm not, but because I, I don't think it particularly always helps creating, with, with creating shared space, but nevertheless there is a sense in which 
Ireland and Irishness that, that incorporates those traditions. And not just those traditions, by the way, but the diversity of what Ireland is now. South Belfast is, um, I was speaking to a, um, a racial equality campaigner uh, and, um, and community worker earlier on today. South Belfast, as you know, was one of the most diverse, certainly in, in Northern Ireland, probably in the whole, um, whole of Ireland. Um, we are not just are we not uh, in the north of a binary community anymore. Not just are we, we're not just Irish and uh, you know Irish with some British people on the side. We are a much richer and more complicated uh, Ireland than we have been in our history. And in a weird way, that might be uh, if we can accept that and if we can embrace it, that might be part of how we move on from the difficult bits of our history and into what you described as a genuinely shared Ireland. And I think that's a really exciting and and hopeful. Uh, opportunity for the future. Thanks for that very comprehensive answer, Matthew. Tell me this, Matthew, who inspires you in life? Uh, well, it's a good question. I suppose I'll name a couple of, um, since, I'm, since I've been asked, we're talking about Ireland, um, James Joyce, Van Morrison, um, Roy Keane at one point, but more to the bottom is Pondedry. If you could be anyone, for just one day, Matthew, who would that person be and why? Probably a twenty-one-year-old version of myself. <laughs> <laughs> I would li- I would like to hear that story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, yeah, but more just being being able to have a lie and not having a two-year-old to think about. But anyway. Yeah, Matthew, who's the most famous person you have in your phone book? Oh, that's a really good question. I saw this quote. You asked this question to other people. I have to get my phone book. Um, <laughs> No, I, I said famous person. <laughs> Sorry, Colin, I'm only joking. I just say that anyway, even if it's not true, because it'll be, it's a, that's the diplomatic answer to give. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, good, good, good answer. And, and thankfully, Colin was actually our first guest on the Shared Iron podcast series. So, so a big, big kudos to Colin for, for that. Um, which actor would you choose to play yourself in a movie about you and why, Matthew? Ah oh, yes. I used to be a barman for many years. <laughs> Very good. So it would, it would be, if, if it was a younger version of Ted Danson, it would be a, He's not ginger haired, which I obviously am, but um, but I'm. Uh, yeah, I think a younger version of him might be happy with. Good enough. Uh, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given, Matthew? Join the SDLP. Definitely, yes, exactly. <laughs> um, did, did, did someone said that there was a shared iron podcast really good, you should do it. What? Sorry, I missed that. Apologies, Matthew. Yes, I said, so, I said someone encouraged, a couple of weeks ago, someone encouraged me to do the shared iron podcast because they were big fans. Oh. Say that to, to suck up. No, I think probably just, um, I think the best advice you can give to people is to um, anything that involves. Um, not sweating the small stuff and trying to um, prioritize your stresses uh, and only get worried about very, very important things is, um, is, is giving you useful um, emotional and professional advice. Hey, I think that's very good and I think we should all apply that in all aspects of our life, absolutely. Um, if you had to eat only one food every day for the rest of your life, what would that food be, Matthew, and why again? <laughs> uh, but it would be, it would probably be um, yeah 
some kind of the pretentious bit of me wants to say like nice Spanish America um, or, um, uh, or, or Italian prosciutto but probably just be good Irish yes very good. And you'll be delighted to hear the last question I have for you today is this one. And again, we ask it to all our guests. If you could invite only three people to your fictional dinner party, and they can be alive or dead, uh, who would they be and why? Right, well, I'm going to say one because I'm reading about the day Peter O'Toole. I think he, my namesake, who um, uh, I, I, a bit of a raconteur and probably the most famous ever Hmm. Although uh, not actually born on the island of Ireland, as I was having an argument with someone on Twitter, but this is actually born and brought up in Leeds, um, but uh, probably Peter O'Toole. Um, then I think maybe um, uh, a couple of, since we're, since we're, this is a shared island podcast, I will just name Irish people. I think Edna O'Brien, who's a, um, uh, a, um, uh, a really fascinating woman um, who's still writing and about to turn 90. Mm-hmm. Should be a stimulating dinner party, um, Matthew. Absolutely. It would be really surreal because none of them would have anything in common. <laughs> yeah, but they came to see it room anyway. Yes, great. Interesting photo. Indeed. Tell me this: just um, do you miss your journalistic career? certainly and I'm sure our, our, our members will also look forward to the article you'll be writing for us in the near future so we'll look forward to that Thank you very much I'm pretty delighted to, to, to talk to you and thank you for having me So folks that is um, the second part of our podcast interview with um, MLA uh, Matthew O'Toole finished and just before I go the Shared Ireland team would like to thank Matthew and all our political representatives, um, regardless of which party they come from across this island of ours, for trying to, um, I suppose, act uh, in our best interests, particularly this past three months um, when we have been facing extreme uncertainty um, due to COVID-19. And we would also like to thank all our frontline um, staff Uh, And I suppose in particular, our medical services for the great care and attention and putting themselves and their own families at risk in order to try and help and protect us as a wider society. So thank you very much. Matthew, I will just give you the final opportunity in case you want to say anything before we end today. 
continue to talk uh, uh, about stuff that I think is really important. And we've got and then, uh, like a challenging, we have a challenging period ahead, but um, with, with COVID and Brexit. But um, I think if there, uh, if anything good will come, certainly of Brexit, I don't think anything good will come of um, COVID, although it might change some of our working practices for the better. But in relation to Brexit, it's how we think about. Um, how we think about ourselves on this island, how we relate to one another, um, uh, and to focus on how we can find positive opportunities for our island going forward, including um, a change constitution. Um, and I think the, the, the breadth of that conversation, um, we, we don't even know yet how, how, how broad that conversation can be, and I think people can be included in it and feel, um, feel valued and feel part of the conversation in a way that... Um, uh, it will be really, really positive, and, uh, and it doesn't just have to be a kind of, it, it doesn't have to be, a, a, as it were, a narrow, um, exclusive conversation. I think lots of people, particularly younger people, I've, one of the things I've noticed over the past few years of talking about this, and even before I was a politician, I was still doing some writing and speaking at various events, is that the number of young people who are engaged and really genuinely engaged in the idea of um, uh, significant change uh, is really... Um, Great, thank you. That's it, folks. Um, thanks for listening to part two of the podcast with um, SDLP's MLA for South Belfast, Matthew O'Toole. And don't forget to check out part one of this podcast that will be directly above this link. Okay, folks, thank you. Be safe. Speak soon. Bye-bye.